Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Hi, I am Jeffrey Berman. Today on Tangent, we have Corey Sylvester, co-founder and principal at DXD Capital, where he's building and investing $500 million in storage across the US. Corey previously bootstrapped a seven-figure self-storage data company called Radius Plus. Hi, Corey. Where does this podcast find you? Good morning. I am in uh, Connecticut this morning. And it appears that he, much like you, Edward, has fantastic internet. Well, I do not. (laughs) And thus, I am not on video. So you can see a wonderfully airbrushed photo of me. Almost too airbrushed. That looks great. Thank you. That's what I was fishing for. Yeah. Jeffrey, that looks better than uh, Mid Journey or Dali too. So it's a good (laughs) image. You've always had a, a voice and a face for podcasts. So we appreciate your presence here. Corey, lots to talk about. We are going to talk about today about self-storage, the least sexy yet arguably the best asset class in commercial real estate. Tell us what are you seeing on the market? What's uh, some of the industry trends? Uh, what's the investor and developer sentiment right now? Investor sentiment is shifting. You know, if you think about what's happened in self-storage across the last three years, you had a big run-up in demand from COVID. You know, we really didn't know what COVID would do and what it ended up doing is creating a lot of demand from people, you know, needing additional space in their homes and a variety of different reasons. It pushed up occupancies and rates across the country rather ubiquitously everywhere. And then, you know, the last couple, I'd say 12 to 18 months, you've seen kind of a, a cooling to a certain extent, although the the run-up that we saw from COVID, you know, we've kept probably 70% of that run-up. So we look at like core fundamentals, occupancy and rates in the industry, uh, they're still very high. And if you look at the previous cyclical peak of the industry, which was in 2016, we're at those 2016 levels. So the industry from a health standpoint, from occupancy and rates, we're looking still very strong. You know, people get a little uh, a little distracted from the fact that that we're down off of 2021, 22 highs, but from a holistic standpoint, it's still very healthy. In terms of, you know, calling a commercial real estate asset class resilient, I think if we don't talk about self-storage, then, you know, we, we're doing a disservice because get this, there are over 50,000 self-storage facilities in the US. That's more than Starbucks, McDonald's, and Subway restaurants combined. Uh, so that means with an average of 546 units per facility, uh, the US has over 27 million storage units. Should be called the United Storage of America. Canada has self-storage, similar to the US. Less, less penetration, I'd say, but a little bit in the UK, Australia has some, but it is a US phenomenon because we love crap. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw, I'm gonna throw a tangent in already because <laughs> this is so frustrating for me. I have, I have Edward. When this goes live, I want you to bleep out this number because this is embarrassing. Just bleep out the number, but the whole, the whole sentence should say. I can already tell you've got many storage. Corey, I have beep vaults of storage with furniture clothing, just crap that I will never use again. And this is a conversation with my wife that I I, I beg. She says, no, I stop begging. And then I bring it up again because I spend a fortune on it. 
Yep. And lovely folks like you, you know, you guys got to eat too. So I get it. Like that's great for your business. But you know what I wish there was? I wish there was a service within storage that somehow could become a middleman and using software to do this to help people get rid of their unwanted stuff. Just to even like, I, I'll give you a, an anecdote. So we we moved from New York to Florida and we have a lot of our New York stuff in this Florida storage unit. And I wanted to, we we had Edward get ready for another bleep. We had about beep vaults and I got them down to beep because we gave literally tons of stuff away. But of course I did it completely wrong. I didn't know how to do it for the tax donation. So we ended up giving away a substantial amount of really nice furniture, et cetera, without being able to take the tax deduction. And the storage facility was no help at all, which again, it's not in their purview to do so. But for the love of God, just one tiny man's plea, Corey, help us out, build some software for well, this problem. We, you know, I don't think I have the economic incentive to build the software to solve your problem, but I do offer a product that solves your problem at every facility we have operating, which is a giant dumpster in the back. Boom, Actually, low tech, it is, it's a low video. tech solution. No, but there, but there's, I think, I think a lot of people, and I think you're right. I think this is a uniquely American problem because we are an extraordinarily consumerist society. And we are also like, well, what was that show? It's on some network like Hoarders or something like that. We end up on holding- On Stars, Storage Wars. Yeah, all of the- all Hoarders. Of stuff. <clears throat> and Hoarders. I feel like it's wasteful and there has to be some solution from both the philanthropic side and maybe from the storage side, because you could have an economic incentive. Imagine if I said to you, Corey, figure it out and you can have 10% of the proceeds. All of a sudden, that might be worth something. The the element that you're getting to though, it's 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 you know, if you look at those hoarder shows, it doesn't actually come down to the stuff, it comes down to the emotional connection that people have with their things. Right. So you're 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 getting at the, the the core element of what makes storage such a sticky product. And let's just bifurcate. There are real economic value. There's economic value of a plumber using it as a distribution site to put his inventory in, uh, pharmaceutical companies using it. <clears throat> and going back, Edward, to your resiliency is there are a hundred different reasons why people do use storage, you know, transient people needing to store temporarily because 50% of the people only you know stay less than a year. So there are people that use it for a temporary dynamic, but the the long tail customers, the customers that make us the most money are Jeffrey or, or, or people like you, which put it in to storage and have this emotional connection. The economics don't make sense as it relates to what you could buy the same goods for and replace them with. But ultimately there's this element of the friction of not being able to get rid of it for emotional reasons, for a whole host of other reasons. But that's what ultimately keeps people from throwing the stuff out because you could do the math for them all day of this does not make sense to continue to rent these things. You know, we people rent them for 10, 20 years. Right. Oh, I, look, I don't want I don't want to throw it away because I, I find that wasteful. I want someone else to use it. We have beautiful, beautiful things that we will never use again. And I'd rather give it to a charity, but the charities themselves aren't even set up for it. They're like, well, you have to catalog it. You have to do this, that, and the other. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if you're going to make it impossible for me to give you things that are incredibly valuable, I, I'm not going to do it. 
I yeah. Think I have a I have a day job. Thus, the industry is is well suited to do well into the future because I don't I don't know of any products yet that are gonna solve that. Great. Forget about Corey. We need uh, to book Jeff with Marie Kondo ASAP. <laughs> now, talk about the largest monthly subscription that most American families have, uh, which is self-storage, right? I think the average is right now around $180 a month. Uh, we have over one in 10 US families using self-storage. So if you look to your left and look to your right and your family's in there, they're probably at the self-storage unit. Now, Corey, you want to talk about your businesses because you have run a seven-figure SaaS business called Radius Plus, which I got the fortune of using during my early days at Neighbor. You guys have some great comps across the nation for self-storage uh, facilities. And now you're building a nine-figure real estate platform. How are those two uh, working in tandem and what's your vision there? There are arm's length companies, meaning they, you know, I, I own a, a Radius Plus with two other partners and, and DXT was actually with a customer. I started DXT with a customer of mine at Radius Plus. But uh, yeah, the the idea was, you know, I got into storage from, I used to be in the investment world. I was at a hedge fund and um, we started an uh, advisory business. That's originally what the Radius Plus, the legacy you know, business was is we were advising hedge funds and self-storage was just the first industry we came across where we found a big thesis, which was in 2016 was to short the stocks. So we never actually shorted them ourselves, but we were advising you know, some of the largest hedge funds in the world that there was a bunch of supply that was about to come on. And so you should short them through that process, found out that there was, you know, a lack of information that the industry needed in order to make investment decisions to buy a facility or develop a new one. And so we built the technology and, and ultimately, you know, grinded for several years to build the first in, in only, um, supply data set of where is every facility, how large is it? And then we started adding in, okay, let's track every single rental rate that's out there, track the developments, integrate demographics. And so that was, Radius Plus and and kind of found ourselves in a different business model than we ever expected when we started, which is, you know, not uncommon uh, as I'm learning when you start a company, you don't really always end up in the in the path that you originally sought. From that, you know, really got a very granular understanding of not only the data, but how people think about developing uh self-storage and and thought that there was a a better path that was not as typical as it relates to how developers thought, which was, you know, self-storage rates function a lot like airline rates in that if you find a really high ticket price from Denver to New York City, you don't really need to know the occupancy of that airplane to know that there are not a lot of seats left, right? Same dynamic as it relates to storage. Prices are very dynamic. They use the same pricing methodology. So to the extent that you use price as your, as your real indicator of where you should go build like that was the concept i thought we should pursue and so called a, a customer minor radius and said you know i think i think that we should start a, a development organization which now we're buying them as well under the premise of using this as our investment methodology and you know we started dxd in march of 2020 so a, a little bit of a interesting time to be starting a real estate private equity company but you know, that's the premise of DXD is that we're using data kind of unconstrained from how normally 
people were thinking about developing self-storage and that we came from it from an outside perspective my my uh my partner on the dxd side is developed for 20 years so he has that development experience that i lacked you know but we really came at it from a data standpoint to look at it of from this you know what is the best indicator to use and how should we think about these things dynamically and without the constraints of how people have always thought about it and that's what's made us successful at dxd is that you know we've we've taken that approach and and doubled down on it and, and uh, you know it's 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 done well for us that's a fascinating journey from a recovering hedge fund recovering successful hedge fund professional to data storage data recovering hedge fund professionals it's successful is a debatable recovering uh confirmed um now corey i don't know if it's a coincidence that the company is called dxd when the famous d's that drive the demand for storage were uh downsizing divorce death and can't remember the other d but uh quite uh quite fitting so talk about some of the self-storage facilities that you're investing and developing um where are they located what size are they um are you looking at any office to storage conversions a quick answer is we're developing in hawaii and we're developing in rhode island and and everywhere in between you know normally when you read an investment deck it's like these are the areas that we're targeting and these are the msas we're trying to target and i i, I hate that constraint when you start an investment thesis we started from the standpoint of you know when you develop it's a it's a pretty simple equation you have your rental rate you have your cost to build you have your operating expenses you have your property taxes and you have your land basis and so you can reverse engineer based on knowing what your property taxes are in an area what your general land cost is going to be what your construction costs to what the rental rate needs to be so we use that rental rate as the determinant of where we go and we build it ends up being a lot of the places that you would see in those decks of you know sunbelt markets and some some infill in in the northeast but you know some of the west so western markets as well and you know that's done very well for us so using that as as the basis to 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 figure out where the best sites are office conversions you know we have looked at several there's some that work they can be complicated in that the zoning can become mm -hmm. difficult and the floor loadings uh, are something that you don't always have an office building that can can withstand the weight of what a self-storage facility would 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 uh require and uh you know there are definitely opportunities out there we've looked at them we've bid on a few um i think there'll be more but at the same time filling up a 300,000 square foot office is not conducive with the model that we take which is you know generally in in LA or New York City you can you can you can build 200 plus square feet of storage that's a much rarer occurrence than what you normally build which is you know on the high side what we're building is 150,000 square feet and on the lower side would be 60,000 square feet and really that sweet spot is probably closer to 100 to 80,000 square feet because you know your your the amount of supply you build is 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 a factors into how quickly you can lease it up and how much you can push rates and and that then you know how much risk you're taking really right. so you know certain office buildings fit into that you know model and many don't you'd think that because storage and office are closer together to than 
and housing and office and you know office to housing conversions are are the ones that are being touted around the country even though they're much harder in practice you'd think storage even though lower rent per square foot than office i mean at least up until covid nowadays who knows maybe they're yeah, already reaching the way we develop our cities the suburban experiment is bankrupting us and endangering our neighborhoods we face a nationwide housing crisis, dangerously designed streets, a lack of transparency in city finances, endless highway expansion, and huge wasteful parking lots. But there's hope. Imagine a world where communities thrive, where cities are resilient, safe, inviting, and inspiring. Enter Strong Towns, a beacon of change to challenge the urban landscape status quo. Strong Towns is a nonprofit dedicated to transforming our cities by challenging this broken model and empowering citizens to improve communities. They provide the knowledge and tools needed to tackle these challenges head on. Strong Towns equips you to take control of your community's future, advocating for financially strong, resilient cities. They provide solutions that foster collaboration and generate positive transformation at the local level. Join their network of passionate advocates across the U.S. and Canada. Ready to shape a brighter, more sustainable future for our cities? Visit strongtowns.org. To learn more, go to strongtowns.org. But um, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's a new breed of uh, storage companies, of storage models and subcategories in storage that uh, I want to talk about. Um, and first on the list would be clutter the on-demand storage company that had raised over $440 million from VC funds, including Sequoia, SoftBank, Fifth Wall, uh, and recently sold itself for $40 million. Uh, that's 10 times less. What's going on? Has the on-demand storage model failed? Yeah. The, when you think of on-demand storage, what you're really talking about is a logistics business because the, the storage may be the end end goal of what you're trying to do. But what really became the difficult part is that you've got to pick up people's stuff, end up dropping it off as well, and then uh, logistically moving it into a warehouse and, and, and keeping it there. There's only so much efficiency you can drive out of a out of a person or a group of people that are driving a truck around every day. So, you know, there's there's limitations on how much output you can get from your crew. And at the same time, you know, people in storage don't stay uh, on average. They don't always stay for 12, 18, 24 plus months. And so when you start factoring in the fact that you have high churn in some of your customers, that becomes a very costly dynamic that, you know, to try and compete at the at the price point that storage offers, it becomes a very premium product. Uh, if, if you really want to make that business model work and as, as price goes up, the number of people that are going to, you know, pay for that service goes down, and ultimately, I think that's what they found. You know, is that the the economics don't work because your average average user, you, you can't just find the people that are staying eighteen months because they don't know if they're going to. You don't know if they're going to stay for that long until after they've stayed for that long. So it's not like you have the ability to to uh, select those tenants that are that are going to be staying for longer. So you've got this natural high cost uh, customer that's coming and staying for six months. And it just further, you know, 
creates this dynamic that you really need even longer customers on the other end to to counteract that. And it's just this 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 treadmill that's impossible to keep up because it gets faster and faster and faster. And you know, separating the idea that like you have to educate a population about a completely new product and there's a trust factor and you're gonna take your stuff my stuff where yeah and yeah. you know it it became a look Uber for everything was not and is not a good concept when it comes to venture backability. Edward, you and I, I have discussed exactly this what I was about with, to bring up, Jeffrey. Yes, I want your take right, on with, that. With, with Zach, look, Corey, we we're venture capitalists. You know that. You know my my cousin, my partner, and we have to look at the unit economics and not just the sizzle from the steak mm-hmm. and the idea of clutter, etc is pretty interesting, right? But everyone here, I think is old enough to remember some of the models that when we were in college, like Urban Fetch, and there was one that started with a K that on Cosmo.com, do you remember that? And where they would deliver you anything, you could get a, a VCR delivered. I remember I actually got a VCR delivered in college, that's how old I am. And the idea that you could, that this was scalable for venture funding was foolhardy because it was predicated on humans. And until you figure out a way to eliminate the humans necessary to make the logistics more efficient than the traditional businesses, funding at the $400 million level and then assigning valuations that are untethered to reality just doesn't make much, much sense at all. And I think that's why ended up selling at a at, at the price they did yeah there was one model so closet box was one of the operators that what they tried to do because Cl- clutter was an asset heavy business model i mean they own the trucks the people work for them they own the warehouses which you know the unit economics were just insane of what they had to achieve clutter a closet box was trying to use existing moving and storage companies and basically contract with them and then take a margin on top of that. That dynamic had an interesting element to it because it really was like Uber in the sense that you were trying to further take existing assets and then increase the utilization on them versus clutter. It's like you're buying new assets and just trying to maximize the singular purpose of the utilization for the purposes of delivery of self-storage or pickup and demand. They, They folded, I think it was 17 or 18, and when you saw that they couldn't make the unit economics work for me, that's when I knew that clutter makes space, all the, all the rest of them were really doomed because they were even further down the pike with having to, you know, fund their own trucks and their own people and everything else. So yeah, it just, it just doesn't work. For those not familiar with clutter, uh, they used to, or still do, uh, pick up your stuff from your home and drive it to a warehouse, uh, usually outside of town and whenever you need to access your stuff, they'll deliver it back to your door. Now, as if last mile delivery unit of economics uh, were in hard already, add the complexity of transporting heavy items in and out of a city. I mean, not talk about not VC backable returns at all. Uh, and Jeff, I want to get your take on this. I mean, among the investors here, we there was SoftBank. I mean, SoftBank, Uber, I mean, they know what last mile delivery, how hard that is, what, like, were they just doubling down or were they like, 
what's your take? I don't I don't want you to project their own thoughts, but as an investor, like what what's happening here? Are you asking me or Corey? Jeff, the the VC investor. Yeah, I think that. So I can't describe the motivations of any of the investors because I wasn't in the room. But when you look at SoftBank in particular, and this idea that they they had a hundred billion dollars to deploy, whatever they wrote into this company, I don't know how much it was, but that was probably a fraction of that. And so they might have thought to themselves, this is an interesting model. And it is. The, the idea is interesting, right? You have to separate the idea from the applicability. And no, it is it is an interesting idea. I'm, I love the idea of yeah. dialing someone up on my phone, come here, I'll put stuff in a box, take it away, right. I don't have to think about it. I love that idea. Right. I'm a business person. I do not like- Especially in New York City, yes. Right. But I- I just don't think that the business, the unit economics didn't make much sense. It was being subsidized by venture dollars. And then ultimately, like Corey said, you had an essentially diminishing return on each person that you're getting in because at some point, most of them are going to matriculate out. And so I I don't know. I think it was just they thought, well, this is a logistics business. Uber is successful. But Uber is a logistics technology company. Clutter was not a logistics technology company. They were a logistics company that was asset heavy. And so I I couldn't tell you what the motivation was. I honestly do not know. Pretty sure they don't know either. Um, Talking about asset heavy, let's talk about some asset light or asset medium uh, models. Neighbor.com, the peer-to-peer storage marketplace, they have units uh, in all 50 states. I think the only, still the only storage operator who can claim that. Uh, full disclosure, uh, I was part of Neighbor uh, in between 2020 to 2022, uh, building their commercial real estate side. Uh, I want to get your take uh, on Neighbor and this, uh, you know, Airbnb for storage models, Corey. When you go to store your stuff, there's an element of, you know, what what matters most to people is security and safety. And when you think about what they're trying to convince people to do, there is a cohort that be willing to take a lower price and like the idea of, hey, I'm utilizing some neighbor's space to, you know, their garage to put my stuff in. But if you think about the the TAM, the, the, the customers that are willing to take that jump, that's not, you know, that's not the majority, it's the minority at best. In addition, you have to educate the population when you're bringing them in on the top of the funnel, which increases your customer acquisition cost. And so I don't know much about their economics. Obviously, they're, they're asset light, but it's, it's, it's going to be an afterthought as it relates to storage because there's no, there's no scalability around, you know, trying to convince people that, uh, you know, on the margin, you're not, I mean, you may save some, but on the margin, are you really, yeah, you know, there's a convenience factor. I want to come and and not have to call the person and make sure they're home. And who is this person? And they could go through my stuff. Yeah, maybe there's ways that they've gotten around that. But there's just so many questions I would have as a user yeah. of that. You could say that I'm uh, my view is tainted because I'm building self storage. But if it made sense, I'd go and do it, and we we would have pursued it ourselves. It just doesn't make sense to me. Interesting. So you say security and safety uh, as you know decision drivers for renters. Uh, I would add location and and price, right? I I according to some of the research we made, I don't think anyone, most people don't rent a self storage unit uh, more than five miles away from where they live or work. And 
and they're also price sensitive. I think what traditional self-storage has really, really nailed is the experience, uh, as you said, and also the the homogeneity of the supply. You know, you, you know what you're getting uh, and, and you're, you know, you don't need to coordinate with anyone in most cases. However, in terms of location, I would say some some self-storage facilities do tend to be either in the outskirts or of town or on, on the side of the highways. Uh, so location-wise, if, you know, and we're talking here about not only uh, potentially homeowners uh, renting out unused space to their fellow neighbors that are looking for self-storage or vehicle storage, but also uh, potentially commercial real estate uh, properties that aren't self-storage that may have unused or vacant space, uh, they could potentially uh, take advantage of that. Have you? What's your take on on commercial real estate asset classes such as malls, office buildings, even multifamily uh, that have unused or vacant space for them to monetize it through self storage or vehicle storage revenue? So it sounds like what you're saying is is converting vacant malls and and multifamily, those sorts of assets for self-storage? Uh, could be converting or could be using existing space as is. Yeah, like you re- space as yeah. Is. yeah, I think you run into the same issues around trying to educate your, pop- your, your customer base about how this product is at least on par or, or superior and and worth them taking that incremental step of using something that's, you know, even more unfamiliar to them. I don't. I don't see much, you know, legs in it. To be honest, there may be a, a cohort of people that are willing to take that risk and and try something new, but it's a small market. So uh, I don't. I don't see much real secular risk from that business model ever really having legs because of the 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 structural, you know, problems around how people think and getting them to do something that is is just in my mind kind of out there. Right. Right. No, I think it's not a, a threat to, you know, traditional self-storage in the sense that, you know, again, we've seen how sticky it is. Customers are sticky and people will probably not be able to guess what they have in their storage unit, even though they're still paying for it, as we uh, spoke earlier. Last of the new models, uh, which is kind of connected, uh, stuff, stuff storage or the WeWork of self-storage where they're master leasing commercial real estate space, putting up the CapEx and uh, collecting rent until they recoup the CapEx and then they split with the property owner. So if you have a restaurant, a vacant restaurant, a vacant basement uh, or any other space, uh, stuff will come in, renovate all your space and put in self-storage units uh, and then split the revenue with you. Yeah. So I, I actually, I really like this model and the founder well one of the founders i'm i'm good friends with uh he's a quiet founder but the 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 co-founder ceo is she is a a boss my challenge is this is still very much an analog business and i believe that they're raising on on venture valuations but i actually really like the model and i happen to know i've seen some of their facilities they do they do a a great job i think that's that's accurate. They they probably do the, the nicest storage units out there. My question is, if they do the nicest storage, they also need to charge like that. Now, going back to Corey's earlier point, is there a lot of people out there? Are, are there a lot of storage renters out there that are looking to pay premium top dollar for a place to store their items where when what they care about is uh, mainly 
uh, security and, and, and access. Well, and to Jeff's point is like, it's still, you know, it's not, there's only so much tech you can incorporate into this business model and the issues around scalability just with, let's say you find a 20,000 square foot, you know, office or former retail space, you know, we build at least 60,000 gross in order to make the economics work. Cause you need people to empty out units. You need people to, uh, you know, do logistical things that happened around these facilities. So as you scale, even in a tight city, say you had 20 different locations, like now you've got a, a whole operation that you've got to create around just managing these things. Again, to your point around how much you'd have to charge and to make those economics work. Now you're talking about a, a high-end sliver of the market, which there may be a a business model around, but you know, I still foresee it's it's kind of the same issue, just a different approach to it, that it's 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 gonna be very difficult to get the scale that they need, number of customers they need at the price point that they're gonna they're they're gonna ask for in order to make it work as a real, you know good use of investor capital. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that at least during my time, we we were able to add supply from commercial real estate owners and operators, uh, not only small businesses, but also publicly traded uh, REITs that had unused space either in their parking lots or in their interior spaces. And they could generate revenue month to month. Uh, you know, it, it's almost a why, why wouldn't they, right? At least during lease-up periods or even during development. Uh, you know, if you're doing a gut renovation, you know, going more long-term with stuff, uh, I think that's an interesting play, but certainly you need to make sure the incentives are aligned there. Uh, I do think, however, there's a lot less uh, regulation risk, you know, about using storage uh, within your existing commercial real estate uh, or even home, uh, unless you have a very strict HOA or unless you happen to be working with the selectmen of Saugus, Massachusetts. And I'm not mentioning that for any particular reason. Anyway, Corey, let's move on. A couple of other, uh, a couple of storage subcategories that have popped up or that are becoming more popular in recent years, um, outdoor industrial storage, uh, cold storage for perishable items, uh, even boat and luxury car storage. Um, mm -hmm. Are you looking at any of these subcategories? Are you bullish on any particular of them? iOS, so industrial outdoor storage is on fire, basically just taking a, a plot of land and putting a fence around it. I'm not close enough to the product and quite frankly, don't understand what the barriers really would be. It doesn't seem like there would be many barriers. So while there may be a high amount of demand in the near term, investing in it long-term doesn't doesn't interest me, to be honest. Uh, you know, there may be offshoots where we find an opportunity to do it, but there's no scalability to that model in, in my thinking. Boat and RV, luxury car storage, I, I like that model. I think uh, as as we look out into the future and in this, in this, you know, world where people are working more uh, at home and, and in a remote situation, like the luxury car storage could turn into more of a you know, uh, a, a space that's unique to a person where they have uh, the ability. It's, it's almost like uh, using a, an industrial, you know, uh, space, turning it into kind of an office slash storage slash, you know, just get away from from your house sort of dynamic. There's something there that I think that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, we're, we're looking at that boat and RV, you know, there's 
a lot of demand for boat and RV. HOAs don't like RVs sitting in front of homes and and there's something to be said for that. And that's something that we try and incorporate to some of our facilities. Building it just for boat and RV, it's not a path that we're going down right now. But you know, the pandemic created a lot of RV demand. And so there's a lot of RVs that are looking for homes right now. Another thing uniquely, uniquely American RVs. I, I was not aware, fully aware of the how the RV proliferation until I moved to Salt Lake City a few years ago and then everyone had an RV. I haven't seen a single RV inside New York City. Anyway, Corey, you've been very, very active on social media and I mean that in the best way possible. Um, you've been creating some, you know, first of all, sharing, you know, b building in public, right? Investing in public. I think yeah. you're sharing your insights, you're inspiring. Uh, and you're also attracting investors to join you on the journey. Talk about the, the importance of content creation and thought leadership for commercial real estate players. Yeah. I mean, if 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 anybody's active on Twitter and has seen, you know, guys like Strip Mall Guy or uh, Nick Huber, as we think about building a brand online, you not only attract customers, but you build, most importantly, you just build credibility at scale. People know you. People understand you. You know you you naturally attract people that want to do business with you. They they feel like they know you. You can create value for people that ultimately you'll never you know they'll never become an investor. And I find I I find that to be a one of the components I like a lot about it. But you know I've I tried for five or six years. All right, I'll post something post every two weeks, and you know it, it just kind of fizzled out. And finally got to a place where you know, I was going to do it every day for six months, see what happened in the first stuff that you post. I mean, it just goes out into the ecosystem and no one reads it, but it's like everything else. You do it enough. You start getting a little bit better at it. You figure out like what resonates with people, how to share your story, because, you know, we started a company, bootstrapped it, started a development organization. Like there's a lot of things, a lot of stories you can tell from that journey that resonate with people, that help people, that, 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 people are attracted to. And, you know, I've never been in a very public person, but just decided to go down the path of what would happen if we did this? Because ultimately, as we think about, you know, we're building another uh, software product, it's a property management software. Like, as you think about building other things in the future, if you already have an audience, you know, the, the dynamic of how businesses are built these days, it used to be you build a product and then you go find your customers. And what social media allows you to do is you have this cohort of customers. And if you build lar large enough for long enough, you already have the ears of, of everybody. And then once you have a product, it accelerates that dynamic of how quickly you can have an uptake of that product itself. And that I think is the future of, of how a lot of products are, are going to be sold. If you look at what you know legacy brands are doing they're trying to connect with people on the social side right uh because that they have instant credibility instant scale i mean who was uh i'm forgetting his name but that uh sold uh his wireless stake he's the actor and has the mint, mint mobile oh ryan reynolds yeah i mean that's the that's the model he took a a, a defunct soccer team and just by you know pushing the eyeballs towards that team you know, it creates instantaneous, enormous value. Now, I'm not Ryan Reynolds. I've, you know, don't have that scale, but 
no one in the storage space is really doing that. So I saw an ability for me to say like, listen, I, I can educate people on what I see, what I know in storage and create a little niche of, 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 uh, of a following to where, you know, everything I do do is within the storage space. So, you know, there's, there's real value. I think that is, is worth putting in the time for, and it's painful. It's painful to create content in my own, you know, it's not something that comes natural to me, but, the more you do like you do anything in life, the more you do it, the better you get at it and the more you understand it. So, you know, to anyone who is building a business or wants to build a business or is doing anything, any niche product or large, well-known product, building a online social media presence, I think is is one of the most important things you can do. We're we're social creatures by nature. Uh we we've never had the opportunity to connect potentially with the entire world from one tweet or from one post. Yeah. So it's on one hand, it's normal to get, you know, paralysis on what to share uh, or social anxiety after you share something, if it performs well or not. I do think there's a net negative, you know, if you are chronically every single hour of the day online. However, I think it, I think it's almost as bad uh, to not ever post anything out there because the downside is minimal to zero and the potential upside if you do it consistently you know if you compound as as you've shown uh i think there's tremendous value to unlock and and it's quality over quantity at the end of the day right you don't need to have uh millions of followers as long as you're focusing on your niche you're connecting with people that you know stimulate you and and that you want to learn from or that you want to work together yeah i'd, I'd ask jeff because he's in the space where he's putting money to work is what what have you seen and how do you think about all right, you got a founder that has a following. And is that a is that a factor when you go to investment committee of saying that this is this is an important piece of the equation, or has it not made its way into thinking about the you know potential success of a product that you're investing in? It's a component, but it is not the driving factor. The driving yeah. factor is how talented is the team, how talented is the founder. And that's something that we're quite good at gauging. And I think social is difficult for me because I do not have a social media presence aside from LinkedIn. I have a lot of anxiety, specifically for my children, around the prevalence of bad behavior and bad actors that social media fosters. And yeah. so I have not indulged or engaged myself. And yet when I do, I do find it useful and I do find it informative and I do find it entertaining. And so there is, at least for me personally, there's uh, this dichotomous reaction I have when I see, like we talk about Ryan Reynolds, we're now in a celebrity driven world. And so celebrity driven products and services often get top shelf or more attention because of the celebrity and not always because of the quality of the product. And so right. in and in our industry, in real estate, it's less important. What will be interesting is there are obviously real estate, social media, I'm going to use it. You can't see me, but I'm using my hands and air quoting stars and seeing how they develop their businesses and extend their businesses beyond, let's say, brokerage or development or whatever they're doing, software development, I, I don't know, and creating multiple verticals using the fact that they've been able to leverage 
their social media celebrity and get reach that other people can't because reach really is an important component. Marketing is an important component. If you can market for free or, or close to free and do it at scale, that's pretty powerful. And I remember when Zuckerberg, using his last name, like I know him, bought Instagram for a billion dollars. And I remember reading articles saying, he doesn't know what he's doing. This guy shouldn't be running the company. And I remember saying to myself, no one knows what they're talking about. This is the most important, impactful invention. I mean, you think of what Instagram has created by itself. It it, it was worth a hundred times what he paid for it. And he knew yeah. it. And so I I know this is a, a, a long winding answer to a question you didn't really ask, but yes, it's something that we look at, but it is certainly not a core component of of driving our investment thesis. Understood. It's, you know, in the six months I've done it, we've had sites that have come to us. We've had endowments that have come to us. Using what channel? Because I'm, I'm now going to, if it's LinkedIn, I'll follow you. LinkedIn has been, you know, three or four months. I, I started on Twitter okay. uh, with, with nothing and you know, um, that, that was the original premise because the idea was, is okay. I was having a conversation with one of my partners and he said, you know, if you really want to, I was in this kind of mode where, all right, I'm just doing things. If they're difficult in my life, that means that they're and I've shied away from them because of the difficulty. It's something I need to do. And, and on the business side, the conversation that we were having was, okay, well, if you really want to do something that's difficult, uh, do a newsletter every single week for a year. And I was like, you know, that's a, that's what I need to do. And, the thought process led me down the path of, I first need an audience before I start, you know, writing newsletters. And so that's where I said, okay, well, I need to start at the top of the funnel with LinkedIn and, and Twitter. And so how did you build your Twitter following? Just started talking about my journey, what I've done, you know, but did what you I've start, did you start it? Cause this is interesting for people that are, that are listening, founders that are listening and trying to say like, well, I don't know how many Twitter followers you have, if it's a thousand or a million, I have no idea. Um, yeah. Although I'm I'm going to look it up. Did you start with, did you start with a million? Did you start? No, with I started time? with 200. I mean, I'm at 10,000 right now, but well, I started with 200. 200. How did, how did you start with 200? The first tweet I did is the one that's pinned on my uh, profile is just like, here's my journey into self-storage and talking about how we shorted the stocks and found that no supply was was uh no supplies data set existed and here's how we solved the problem and the you know what people on twitter are attracted to is they're attracted to people that have, that have done things and not to say that what i've done is is that miraculous but within the storage space there's there's interesting things that we have done in terms of being able to create value and how we've done it and how we thought about it and what we originally were trying to accomplish and you know People love when I post, you know, this is a building that we're building and here's how we found it. And here's how we think about rates and educating people that either want to invest in storage, don't understand storage or building stores themselves. Like they are attracted to the story of, all right, this is how this guy doing it. I can follow along and feel like I can glean information or just it's an entertaining source of. You know what? You have just inspired me. We have talked about this a long time. Edward, I want the record to show. This man, I'm going to create a Twitter account or an X account, whatever it's called now. And the first person that I'm going to follow is this man right here. And then I'm going to look for you. And then I'm going to look for Zach Aaron's. And at some point, I'll probably tweet something. What's the actually, what's the right verb now? Yeah, you just tweet. 
You're still Corey, just tweeting. It's not Twitter. You have created. What have you created, Corey? I feel uh, <laughs> Frankenstein. The the Twitter Frankenstein uh, is being born here, and I cannot wait for Jeff's journey on X. And that's well, not I'll be your first follower, channel. Jeff. Oh, I'm so excited! It's are we it's doing a, this live? It it it's it's painful, but ultimately, <laughs> like Jeff, you, you guys have started a a VC firm, you know created a ton of value all the company stories that you guys have like figuring out how to extract that out of what you know there's a process of figuring that out and like how what how you know the, your first line is 90% of it because either people find interest in what you're telling them or how you're leading them on and then ultimately what the story is so there's there's definitely art that you'll learn along the way but but you know on the VC side you you tell your story, you start talking about what you're doing. And over time, founders start coming to you. And it's it's this top of the funnel dynamic. And, you know, don't expect it to, to take off in three weeks. But if there's a consistency element to it, and there's a thought around the stories you're trying to tell. And if you start, I always try and think about, and it's difficult to always do this, is like, what what value am I pushing out on this? Am I just trying to project success or am I trying to project value? And what I found is when you try and project value and authenticity, it resonates very, very well. And you know, you top of the funnel just grows enormously. And I've found it to be, you know, if there's one thing I could have done earlier in ever all my businesses, it's really focused on doing this four or five years ago because I have a, you know, my mat in my head, it's been six months, 10,000 followers, you know, I'm up to, you know, I don't know, like 6,000 on LinkedIn. But if you continue to do it, it compounds. And, you know, I, I can get to 100,000 on Twitter. I can get to 20 or 30,000 on LinkedIn. And then think about how that works when it's, you know, you're talking about a new product or you're, you're you know, just talking about your story. And people naturally, if they like you, they're attracted to you. They come to you. It's it's the most amazing phenomenon that I found uh, a lot of value in. But there's this going back, Jeff, to what you said about you know kids and social media. You know, my kids are seven, five, and three, so I haven't had to deal with this yet. But there's an inevitability of like how to use a gun responsibly. That it's like you can keep kids away from guns, or they can understand like the danger of it and how to properly handle it and what to do if they ever see it and things of that nature. And that's how I think about social media is that it's this, it's this weapon that if some of the stuff I did in high school and college was posted on social media, like I Phoenix. would not be around today. <laughs> and that that's the piece of it where even in my own life, like I have to try and create barriers to it because it can become something it's so consuming. So it's a, it's a lesson in discipline a little bit, but ultimately like, yeah, it's it's there's definitely that scary element of it where you know it can it can become this monster but you know if you if you approach it with the right mentality and it can be a really powerful weapon i think two important points uh before we move on to the last section that you mentioned authenticity right i think people know when you're being authentic but more importantly at the end of the day everyone on social media including people that i want to learn about commercial real estate about prop tech we're looking for two types of content and only two types. One is insightful content, your smart threads, and entertaining content. So your dumb memes. That's all there is. And yeah. I think Corey has found a formula to provide both insightful and entertaining takes about his 
self-storage investing and startup founder journey. Uh, so I encourage you to follow him on your favorite social media platform or his and or his newsletter. Corey, collaboration superpower. If you would have to choose one person, dead or alive, to do a partnership with, to do a collaboration with, who would it be? Uh, collaboration? I mean, I just I love Elon Musk. I, I'm not on his level, but his he's just brilliant. And his uh, the way that, you know, I, I haven't read the uh, the book that just came out, but understanding, you know, some of the excerpts I've seen, his intensity at approaching work and problems and and uh, his brilliance would be something that, you know, I don't know what we would do. Uh, I don't think he'd be interested in anything in a self storage space. But to the extent you <laughs> you collaborated with somebody be like surprised. Him, yeah, you would probably, Jeff, some he of would his probably chips? he would have the smarts to develop the model to reduce to create the uh, solution for your problem. So maybe I don't want to collaborate with him. But no, somebody like that, I I have. I mean, how can you not? You can you can have issues with how he thinks socially or in any number of regards. But what he's done from a business standpoint my stand from my vantage point is just like it's just it's it's just amazing so working with somebody like that who's so much better than me would be uh there would be you know i get huge value out of that ori sylvester where can listeners find you and learn more about dxt capital and radius plus and your upcoming property management software company uh yeah on social media my 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 username is storage data dev uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Corey Sylvester, dxd.capital is our website, radiusplus.com and manage.space uh, are all are all uh, the websites for the products. But uh, yeah, I'm, and, and the other thing is, the other thing with Twitter is, is people reach out and you have a lot of direct messages with people. That's where half the value is on these social media platforms is actually talking with people and interacting with people that otherwise you wouldn't be able to. So people want to talk, have questions, you know, I try my best to, uh, to respond and, and have those dialogues. Community, all about the community and community-based businesses will win in the future. Corey Sylvester, co-founder and principal at DXD Capital. Thank you so much for coming to Tangent today. Thanks, Edward. Jeff, want to say goodbye? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, actually, you know what I do want to say, but Corey, thank you for inspiring me. I am going to sign up for Twitter. Hopefully they'll let me follow you first, um, or I may have to pick someone to follow first and then you'll be number two. But this really is a sea change for me. We'll see if it sticks, Edward, at our next tangent. We'll see. We'll, like, our, we'll do check I have the progress. One follower or do I have a hundred or do I have like keep one follower? It's up to keep you. Our, it's up to you. Keep ourselves accountable. <laughs> if Jeffrey gets banned or suspended from X, we didn't have nothing to do with it. We're bullish on you, Jeffrey. Oh, fantastic. Jeff on X. That doesn't mean Jeffrey on X. Oh, goodness gracious. No drugs for this guy. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share the show with a friend. This episode is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.